I am Plant on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Elaine Dewar joins me again. She's just published a new book, the fourth title in the Biblioasis Field Notes series. It's not a pamphlet, rather a comprehensive look at the COVID-19 pandemic. On the origin of the deadliest pandemic in 100 years reads like a novel in some parts. It orders the timeline, the events of the uh, last 18 to 24 months of living with this virus. Ms. Dewar looks at Wuhan, the epicenter of the pandemic, the actual role bats played in the spread, as well as laboratories there and even in Canada. The government of China comes into focus as its refusal to cooperate with the World Health Organization has cost countless lives, not just in their country, but around the world. Elaine has done tremendous compulsive daily research, reading everything she can from news reports to scientific journals. I'll ask her about the reliability of those journals, because a lot of us think when it says scientific, it must be unimpeachable. She follows the money and shows us its part in getting some things wrong. Elaine Dewar is an author, journalist, and television story editor. Her journalism has been uh, honored with nine National Magazine Awards. She was first on in 2017 with her acclaimed book, The Handover. Her other books include Cloak of Green, uh, Bones, and The Second Tree. Visit elainedewar.blogspot.com for more. She joined me from Toronto last week. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Elaine Dewar. Ms. Dewar, good morning. Hi. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So the last time we talked was for your, your, your uh, previous book, which was uh, like, like this book, just riveting and um, tough to put down. Um, a lot has happened since then, as you opened the, this book with. Um, a lot has happened in your life, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Um, was what was going on in your life, losing your husband, uh, losing your mother, was this what sort of spurred you on to, to, to look at the the pandemic as you have i mean it's pretty it's a pretty deep dive if you will well you know in one way my husband not so much although my husband becomes a figure in the book because i'm still having mental arguments with him two years after his death Hmm. because that was our relationship you know one intellectual battle after another anyway um my mother died in november of 2019 which just happened to be when this thing was brewing in Wuhan, and And what was so strange and interesting was that her life was shaped by the last major pandemic, the uh, Spanish flu Mm. pandemic of 2018-2019. Her mother died one day before her first birthday uh, from that flu. And that was hidden from my mother until she was 14 years old. And the revelation of that secret um, that her stepmother was not her biological mother, uh-huh. that everybody in her extended family was well aware of that fact, but no one told her, uh, really rocked her for the rest of her life. And when she told me that story, um, the idea of secrets and the power of secrets really hurt my attention and I think is partially responsible, maybe wholly responsible, for why I ended up being a journalist, because I... I my life is devoted to getting rid of secrets. And it's marvelous to read your book, Elaine, because you, one can see how your mind works. And, and, I mean, you know, you have a natural skepticism that I think has served you well over the years in your career. Um, and um, it, 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 this pandemic has been something that we've lived with. Um, and 
the sort of thinking that, that you've done in the course of, of, say, living through it and writing this book is the sort of stuff that, that a lot of people haven't had time for, say, because we're, we're dodging the, the, the damn virus. Um, in terms of, of how you got started, what was your process in, ter- in terms of, say, consuming the news you did, reading the papers you did, as well as scientific papers that you did? Um, was that right away from, say... No, well, so initially in January, I, I don't... You will not remember this, but Toronto was hit very hard by SARS, right. the original SARS mm-hmm. in 2003. And I had friends whose lives were really caught up in that. One who was treating patients at uh, Scarborough General, another who lost a partner from infection. Um, and I remember watching uh, the news reports day after day after day about SARS and, and feeling that while there were all these wonderful epidemiologists who were telling us what was unfolding, mostly they were caught out by the second wave and that a lot of different reporting was not very well done. So when this started to unroll in the newspapers and on television in January of 2020, I was sort of hyper alert to the anomalous reporting on the numbers of people who were getting sick in Wuhan. Uh, everybody's saying over and over again, the risk is low, and yet suddenly 11 million people are locked down. Mm. And, uh, you know, our government continues to say the risk is low. And my newspaper is reporting that a heads-up reporter at the Ottawa Citizen phoned up Public Health Agency of Canada to ask about that and was told, yes, the risk is low because there are no direct flights between Canada and Wuhan, which hmm. is possibly the stupidest thing I have heard throughout <laughs> the entirety of the pandemic. So that sort of set every um, journalistic uh, red flag a-waving. In addition, for, for several years now, I have been piling up clippings on China, uh-huh. on Canada's relationship with China, on Canada's failed relationship with China, on China's behavior in the South China Sea, on a whole range of issues. And at a certain point, I was clipping on the the pandemic, and I'm clipping on China, and I realized, oh, wait a minute, you know, this this is one pile, Mm. and there's a story here. And about that time, Dan Wells called up and said he wanted to do a short book, an argument book as part of a series, would I be interested in doing something on pandemic profiteering? And I said, no, 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 the origin story. I'm on the origin story. And he said, okay, let's go. And and what a book you've written. Um, as I told you before we started, it's, it's, a, it's a, bi- a bigger book than I expected, and so I didn't get to finish it, but it, it is riveting. And... Um, I, I, did you go into this thinking one thing and then having your mind changed on another? I mean, in terms of the origin of, of, of this this uh, this pandemic, I think no. But what what I really noticed was, you know, the first red flag for any investigative journalist is when someone talks about scientific consensus. Yeah, and the papers, newspapers, television, everybody kept saying the scientific consensus is that this is a spillover, from a natural origin from somewhere in China. And, you know, there is no such thing as scientific consensus. There is scientific argument. There is scientific debate. There is consensus when you get to scientists working uh, in a political sphere mm. in which an argument is being presented and a few people have signed a document. But, but 
to, to talk about a scientific consensus about origin uh, within a month of the um, people being uh, ushered into uh, hospitals in Wuhan just struck me as ridiculous. So skepticism starts there. A lot of people will remember the the, um, the talk of bats, and and um, so I'm wondering in, in your research what what was the connection with bats, and and, and the thing that I wondered uh, uh, early on was how how can a bat carry a virus and not be ill from it themselves? Well, that's what's so very interesting. Um, so bats seem to be um, carriers of a whole range of really really nasty pathogens: Ebola, hmm. Nipah. Hendra, uh, various forms of SARS. Way back in 2005, after the SARS epidemic had slowed down and basically disappeared, a group uh, went into um, China on, under the auspices of the WHO, trying to figure out where the original SARS came from. And by 2005, this group, which included a woman now known as the bat woman, Shi Zhang Li at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh-huh. plus a, a terrific guy by the name of Lin Fa Wang, uh, originally from China, but by then in Australia at Geelong, a guy named Peter Daszak, a whole range of scientists put together a group trying to discern where or how SARS got going. And they found in uh, bats in Yunnan, which is in the southwest portion of China, um, that bats carried SARS-like related viruses, and they found one that was about 94, 93% like uh, the uh, sample of SARS taken from a patient in Toronto. So they published a paper in Science saying, bats, that's where SARS came from and other issues are coming from that we already knew about Nipah and Hendra coming from bats. We were pretty sure about Ebola. Uh, so bats became the mammal of interest uh, when it comes to spillovers into human population. And that goes back to 2005. That group then went on to spend a lot of money, uh, both from USAID and from the NIH and from Chinese uh, um, funding agencies, uh-huh. to keep track of SARS like coronaviruses in bats in China and elsewhere, and to try and predict their spillover into human populations. So, so that's where bats yeah. are. Now, you ask the question, why don't bats get sick? Mm-hmm. And Lin Fa Wang uh, put forward a hypothesis some years back saying he was pretty sure bats did not get sick because, because they are the only mammal that flies, they require a very high metabolism. And that very high metabolism makes it possible for them to fend off the infection. Hmm. And, and so, does that does that the the idea of, of how much metabolism one needs have, have they has that translated to, to how um, they figure out how humans might be able to to uh, fight the virus themselves? Not really, but. There is a lot of work being done to try and figure out what that means, and one of the groups doing that work is at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I see. Now, in, in terms of uh, bats themselves, because we've heard things of, of, of people in China eating bats or, or um, parts of bats being used for, for um, medicine and the sort, um, would that have been where the virus came from? 
feeling is no, because mm-hmm. there were no bats being, uh, no bats found yeah. in the w- wet market. Actually, the wet market turned out to be not the origin of the virus. Right, yeah. But there's not a whole lot of bats, I guess, flying around in Wuhan. There are bats that harbor SARS-like coronaviruses in Hubei province, which is where Wuhan is located. But the bulk of the research has has come from either the southeast or the southwest of China. Um, Wuhan is great, sort of dead center, like Chicago-ish. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so nobody, as far as I can tell, other than Shi Zhengli, the bat woman, went about in in Wuhan looking for animals carrying SARS-CoV-2 other than in that wet market. And she did a paper on cats. She was looking for uh, domestic animals to see if any of them were might have been carriers who transmitted it to humans. Yeah. You know, a, a bat bites a cat who bites a human. She found SARS-CoV-2 in some stray cats. She found it uh, in some domesticated cats, but her conclusion was that no, it was the humans infecting the cats, not the other way around. So, what does this say about our media, um, not just in Canada but around the world, that that, that the the idea of bats was, say, the source, or or you know, and and, and used really, you know, almost salaciously as as the the, uh, the reason why this virus spread. Well, you know can't really fault the media because the media aren't doing the science, they're reporting on it. Mm. And very early on, a group with vested interests started publishing in leading journals that bats were the probable source of, of this virus, uh, and that the notion of a lab leak was, you know, silly. Mm-hmm. And some, who, who went farther, published in Lancet, for example, uh, that it was the equivalent of a conspiracy theory. And that publication in Lancet was in February of 2020. So mm. no data whatsoever about where this virus came from, just a flat-out, don't even look there, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So major media, uh, as a matter of course, look at major science journals and take as a kind of given that the work that is published there must be accurate, otherwise it wouldn't survive peer review. Sure. I think if I've learned anything in doing this project, it's that that, that system can no longer be trusted. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, the reason why, as you say in the book, is because of the, the um, people with this, uh, organizations, I should say, with vested interests, uh, fund a lot of that stuff, right? Fund a lot of that stuff, and in the United States, we're talking about the National Institutes of Health, the NIAID, which is the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, the, the agency Dr. Fauci heads, mm-hmm. and USAID, which had funded uh, a lot of work between 2009 and when the, the project ended at the end of 2019 at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, looking at whether it was possible to predict spillovers coming from bats uh, before they actually get going in a human population. And and what I have to say is that $200 million PREDICT program, which was had labs all over the world, some of them funded through a charity called Echo Health Alliance, about which more later, mm-hmm. um, those guys failed to predict every major epidemic between 2009 and when they closed down in 2019. Hmm. 
they didn't pick one. Yeah. You mentioned a moment ago the the, the, um, the virus leaking out of a lab in Wuhan. Uh, that's something that we, we've um, heard about. I'm not at that part of the book yet. So uh, you do look at that and, and think about that um, quite seriously in, in the course of your book, do you not? I do. Yeah. Um, what, what do we need to know about a Canadian connection to that? Well, we need to know about the Canadian connection to the uh, highest levels of virology research in China, both civilian and military, that goes back to 2014. Um, we have in Winnipeg something called the National Microbiology Laboratory, which is part of a structure in which human pathogens, so things that kill humans, and animal pathogens are studied under the same roof in labs that have differing levels of biological containment. So we have a level four lab in Winnipeg, which is the only level four lab in Canada. Level four labs are where you study pathogens for which there is no known vaccine or no known treatments, or the vaccine is not very good and the treatments are really awful. Uh, so Ebola would fall into that category, and I think now SARS-CoV-2 should fall into that category too. Mm. But um, in Winnipeg, uh, two Chinese scientists, who chi two scientists who came to Canada through the University of Texas to Winnipeg in about 1997 or 1998, became very important in the study of pathogens at the NML in the level four. One person's name is Shang Yu Chu and her husband Ketting Shang. They started working with the NML in 2003, the original SARS period. And very rapidly, Shang Yu Chu came on staff as biologist and ended up studying Ebola, therefore in the level four. Her husband, Ketting Cheng, stayed at the University of Manitoba uh, and then by 2013 was, uh, became a member of the NML as well. By 2014, they were starting to work with a fellow by the name of George Su Gao, who is now the head of the China Center for Disease Control. Mm -hmm. uh, and by 2017 was in that position. And within a year of doing a paper with George Gao, um, they were doing papers with a woman named Chen Wei, who turns out to be a major general in the People's Liberation Army of China. Mm. They're leading uh, expert on Ebola, the crafter of an Ebola vaccine, which was tested in Winnipeg, and they're leading bioweapons experts. And two major papers that I'm familiar with, there may be more, were done by Sheng Yu Qiu with Chen Wei out of Winnipeg. Question, how did that happen in a secret lab that requires a secret security clearance to have the member so high up in a foreign military, not our friend, having access to that lab and data from that lab? No one has answered that question appropriately, but it may be what led to their final firing in uh, 2021. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that in addition to the work with George Gao, in addition to the work with Chen Wei, Shang Yu Qiu uh, went five times to work with people in the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Shi Zhengli's lab uh -huh. between 2017 and 2019. And, you know, the, the story is that she was helping them get their biosafety level four, their first, up and running and helping to train staff. But I think it's actually... <laughs> it's much more than that. Yeah.
Yeah. Um, the rising influence of China um, worries a lot of people. And, and in the course of your research uh, for what's happened in the last year and a half, two years, um, one wonders how much blame could be laid at the, at the feet of the government of China. Uh, if if they had uh, say been more open, would more lives have been saved? Say. Well, I think that's clear. I mean, uh, the part of the book that deals with that is the way China first tried to suppress any information about what was circulating in Wuhan as of November, December. Uh, in fact, three commercial labs were sent samples from people who came down with this very weird pneumonia that wouldn't respond to normal treatment. And three separate labs identified it as a novel coronavirus, a SARS-like novel coronavirus. They were told to destroy their samples. Hmm. It wasn't until uh, ProMed published on December 30th that there was a weird pneumonia circulating in Wuhan that uh, either the China CDC or the National Health Commission or anyone else in a an official capacity at the WIV uh, got involved in figuring out what was going on. And then, for some time, China tried to suppress information about the actual genome of the uh, virus. It was two separate guys, one um, an academic, a, a scholar at the University of Fudan, and his colleague who had an appointment both at Fudan and is at the University of Sydney who actually published that first genome sequence, and they did it through a blog in Edinburgh, because that blog was obviously not uh, subject to Chinese censorship. Mm. Two days after that, official China published the genome sequence. And, but it wasn't until the 20th of January that they admitted that there was person-to-person -person, uh, communication and transmission, in spite of the fact that they knew they had a pandemic on their hands by... Uh, the 14th of January. So they first they tried to suppress it, then they tried to um, withhold important information for others to protect themselves. They allowed millions of people to get on planes and get on trains until the 23rd, mm -hmm. uh, basically seating all the major cities in China and the rest of the world thereby. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, they're responsible for this. Yeah. So, so um, one wonders as I'm reading the book: um, uh, is it a concerted effort, or is it just sloppiness on on a lot of part of, uh, on on the part of say government it's institutions? It's really hard to know, but we do know from the really heads up reporting from the Associated Press and, mm -hmm. and from some of the journals in Hong Kong that the certainly officials in China knew by the 14th what they were dealing with. They knew they had a pandemic on their hands, and it's absolutely unconscionable that they, instead of calling in the WHA and saying, you know, we got a problem, we got to do something, let's go now, they held off everybody. And, and to my way of thinking, as you will see when you get towards the end of the book, mm -hmm. that kind of behavior is guilty behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the thing that I'm thinking about as I, I look back at the last 18 months or so um, is... Um, you know, I, I keep wondering about the next 18 months. And, and in the course of, of writing this book now, um, are, are you better at, say, I don't know, predicting is not the right word, but can you foresee what, where we might be a year hence, say? You know, when I started this thing, I remember saying to the publisher, 
we have to do this quickly because, you know, the thing is going to be over. We're, we're, as soon as we have vaccines, mm-hmm. it'll be over. And no one will want to hear a word about it. When the 1918-1920 period of the first flu, Spanish flu pandemic, after it was over, nobody wrote about it. It was ignored. It never made its way mm. into fiction. It was just, you know, no one wanted to talk about it. 50 million people died worldwide, and the whole world just turned its back on the story. So I said, Dad, we've got to get this out because no one's going to want to read a word about it after we've all been vaccinated and, and the, the danger dies down. And I was totally wrong about that. Yeah. Because first, getting totally vaccinated is an almost impossible task. And in the meantime, while we're getting vaccinated, people in India were not, mm. and therefore more variants of concern were spreading. And this system now is going to continue on for quite some time. I cannot even begin to predict how long. But we're not out of the woods for a long time, is my judgment. Yeah, we're we're in the. I I think we're in the fourth wave here in British Columbia, which I I don't know. It's it's different in different provinces, I guess. But I mean, um, we're not going to get back to normal, if you will, for for a long time. And and um, I don't know. I think we're all going to be wearing masks for a very long time. Yeah. Well, what do you make of the the misinformation that uh, a lot of people have? uh, you know, these are these are folks that, that probably don't consume the traditional media, if you will. Um, that misinformation is spread faster than the virus, you know, thanks to the Internet. Um, do you think th- there'll be a change in our culture in, in that regard, or, or will that I be think, the reason why it lasts long? I think that was part long? of our culture long before this pandemic hit. Mm. You know, I mean, there were conspiracy theorists who liked Mr. Trump and thought, you know, that people were chopping up children to serve the Democratic Party. I mean, this stuff has been going on since the Internet became something that everybody had in their house. And, yeah. and I don't think I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Yeah. No. And the skepticism towards the vaccine as well. Uh, we, and that's just so awful. Yeah. It's so awful. I mean, to, that, that we have the capacity to save ourselves, and a big chunk of our population thinks, you know, it's unsafe or it's somehow a, a, a plot. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just awful. Yeah. I could um, talk all day with you, but I, I want to get back to reading the book. Um, okay. It's It's a riveting book. It's a very fine achievement. Um, I so appreciate your time today, Elaine. Congratulations on it. Thank you. The book is called On the Origin of the Deadliest Pandemic in 100 Years. It's published by Biblioasis. Visit Elaine's uh, website at elainedewer.blogspot.com. Elaine Dewar, join me on the line from Toronto and Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato.